0: People have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women too that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally.
1: Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it.
0: A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us, too, as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis.
1: I'm Taya Graham.
0: And I'm Sean Yose, and we're your hosts. I was literally like a journalism joke. I had created a serial killer and um, I felt like my career was over.
1: Welcome back to Truth and Reconciliation. Today we're going to explore the mystery of a serial killer that wasn't until it was.
0: It's the third in our series of shows on how the media affects a narrative about crime, and in this case, race as well.
1: A tale of fear and loathing that still resonates today. All that coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation. This show is going to be more personal and take a look at the deep psychological effect of aggressive policing in communities and how it sinks roots into the psyche of a city. But it's not just about the consequences of arrests or botched investigations, but about how policing can change the way we think. Not just about ourselves, but about who we are and the city in which we live. And even more vexing our own sense of individual and communal potential. To tell it, we're going to start with a story, so to speak, that Stephen covered and how it changed his life and the way he thinks about Baltimore and also what it prompted him to do. To do so, we have to go back to the fall of 2006 during the height of zero-tolerance policing. As we've said before, Baltimore police were arresting 100,000 people a year. What you
0: had was you had people who wanted to get elected, who wanted to get crime numbers down quickly, with no regard for what the future held. They had no vision for the future and how this would create an antagonistic relationship. You know, he had have, he have a lot of questions from this, can I, well, how can I say it, this incident that scarred him for life.
1: And Stephen was writing stories about them almost weekly.
0: I was working at the Baltimore Examiner, and one of the concepts that drove the paper was that we had to write two stories a day. And, you know, that's actually a lot. It doesn't sound like much, but for a print reporter it was. And one of the things that I learned pretty quickly was to turn a a story, um, you had to look for something that could be kind of narrative. And there were so many arrests, and they were so crazy, that I started just writing about the arrests. It would be like a one story. Here's an arrest about, you know, a couple going to a baseball game that gets lost. Here's an arrest story about a pastor who gets arrested on his way to church. So it just became sort of a beat for me to write about zero tolerance.
1: Just to give some background, 2006 was a pivotal year for politics in Maryland. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Over the next hour, we will hear from both candidates for Maryland governor. Tonight's debate is sponsored by the Baltimore Jewish Council, and we thank them for being with us today. Then-Mayor Martin O'Malley, the architect of Zero Tolerance, was trying to unseat a Republican governor, Bob Ehrlich.
0: You have a clear choice to make in this contest. It is whether we move forward
1: to better days or whether we slip back. Ehrlich, who was trailing in the polls, was also trying to make inroads into Baltimore. To do that, he was criticizing O'Malley about over-policing.
0: You arrested, you had a lot of folks arrested in Baltimore City. A lot of African Americans were arrested. Was it one of every eight or nine folks in Baltimore City were arrested in, in your tenure? And you talk about this sort of this racial tension that, some, that lies beyond some of your, your comments about talking bad about Baltimore. I didn't order that, that's for sure.
1: That fall, rumors of a serial killer started emerging in Lower Park Heights, rumors that became so pronounced that Stephen was assigned to cover the story.
0: So, every reporter at the Examiner had to work on weekends at least once a month, and it was a weekend in October, I was assigned to work on a Saturday. And there had been rumors about a serial killer in Lower Park Heights. Um, I'd already written one story about it, and so had The Sun, because residents felt like women were dying all over the place. And that Saturday, there was a protest, which uh, the community called, because they felt like they weren't getting enough attention on this story.
1: We believed as far back as 2003, that a man had been killing women.
0: So having to work the weekend, naturally, you know, I picked up the story because it was something I could get done that day. But also it was something pretty important because the palpable fear about a serial killer was driving people to actually go out and like hold up signs and protest. So I thought it would be a good story to cover.
1: were about 50 to 75 people at the protest and they were all convinced that there was a serial killer in Northwest Baltimore preying on women. I, when I heard about the protest I was compelled I had to go. I wanted to show support for the community. They had placards and they were standing out on Park Heights Avenue waving down vehicles.
0: I, I was standing there covering the protest writing down what people were saying, and, you know, people were waving their signs as people drove down. And I was just suddenly taken by one placard that was, like, right in the middle of the protest. There was a picture of a woman, you know, with very sort of friendly eyes who, you know, light brown curly hair, and she just kind of looked angelic sitting there in the middle of the protest. And they were waving her sign, like, back and forth. It just kind of struck me because her face just kind of hit me.
1: The picture was of Tyra McClary, a 37-year-old woman who we talked about on this show in a previous episode. McClary had been found buried under a pile of mulch, a plastic bag tied around her legs not far from the protest. Her death had been ruled undetermined, meaning the medical examiner could not conclusively rule that her death was one of the four manners of death, suicide, accident, homicide, or natural causes.
0: I took some pictures because, you know, at The Examiner, we had to be multimedia and take some pictures and interviewed some people and said, you know, how many people, you know, how many women have died? And, you know, what are are we talking about numbers here? Because the police, who I had spoken to before and spoke to that day, were firm that only one woman had been murdered in the Park Heights area in, in maybe the past 30 days. And they gave me, you know, stories about Tyra McClary saying that she was strangled um, and several other women that they said had been found behind the railroad tracks right across uh, from Park Heights. And so they felt like there were a number of women who, who had been murdered. And, uh, you know, it kind of put me in an interesting dilemma because I had two different versions of the story. But I wrote the story from perspective of the community and the police. And I put what the community told me, and I put what... You know, the police told me, and I just wrote what they said, factually speaking, and that was it. I filed the story, and it was published, and that was what I thought was the end of it. So a few days later, after the story was published, I get an email from a reporter at The City Paper, which was our alternative weekly, which no longer exists. And he said he wanted to discuss the story with me. I I wasn't sure what he wanted to do, but I I used to work at the City Paper, so I figured, hey, you know, I'll, I'll give him a call, or he gave me a call. And so he calls me. And from the beginning of the call, I mean, it felt like to me that he was yelling at me. Not about the serial killer story, but about my arrest stories and I just remember him critiquing my stories about people being arrested as being incomplete or not really you know factual or balanced and then he started asking me about what people had said at the protest you know and I said well I I didn't you know I wrote down what the police said but I felt like the community I had to listen to them and he said do you have any evidence or proof of this and I was like I only have what the police told me and what the community told me i i haven't been able to confirm any of it and it was a very hostile phone call and i was surprised because i'd been a city paper contributor for three years working for 25 cents a word and hustling around town while i held down another job but when i held that phone uh the thought i had was this is not going to be good
1: Habeas Crappus, Baltimore Examiner, blows stories about serial killer out of proportion. A lie will go around the world while the truth is pulling its boots on. The Rev. Charles H. Spurgeon. The murders are multiplying, according to the Examiner. On November 1st, the newspaper informed readers that the governor himself is investigating the allegedly brutal murders of at least half a dozen women in the Lower Park Heights neighborhood. Two days earlier, Examiner reporter and erstwhile city paper contributor Stephen Janis quoted activist and radio host Darren Muhammad, who put the body count at 7 to 15. Worse than Baltimore's usual horrific murder total, these young girls were bound and slashed and in some cases beheaded, according to a neighborhood barber, and the police are actively covering it up. What a story. Good thing it's total crap. How does the nose know? Because there are no slash dead bodies, there are no outraged relatives of missing girls, there is, in fact, no evidence at all to indicate even a single woman was killed in that neighborhood over the past several months. The one victim Mohammed names, Tyra McCleary, died of a drug overdose in late August. Her head was not cut off, as Mohammed claims. She was not found half buried. I'm not sure what their agenda is. Baltimore Police Department spokesman Matt Jablow says, it's amazing to me that this still has legs. This is the Loch Ness Monster.
0: The piece was picked up by all the big journalism blogs like Romanesco and Pointer. I was literally like a journalism joke. I had created a serial killer, and um, I felt like my career was over. And there was one sto- part of this story that really profoundly affected me, and I don't know why it did. It seemed kind of minor, but they used my press pass picture to, as a photo for the article. So when I went online and I pulled it up, I see my press pass picture staring back at me. And the thing about my press pass picture is it was taken by the art director there, and he had me kind of pose my, my head so my chin was resting on my um, chin. And I looked like a total douchebag. I mean, I looked I looked so pretentious. So here's this article, you know, call, saying I made up a serial killer. And here's this like pretentious guy, you know, in like a navy sweater and a collared shirt, just looking like the type of guy that would make up a serial killer. So beyond just the fact that, you know, the entire journalism world thought I'd done this was the fact that I actually looked pretty dumb and sort of stupid doing it.
1: You know, you never really discussed the piece with me or what was happening to you, but I do remember that my mother mentioned it to me, and she said it made you out to be a pretty bad reporter.
0: Yeah, no, I know. I mean, I think I was just, I just couldn't deal with it because, you know, I'd been working at the city paper for like 25 cents a word and holding another job, which I almost lost because of my freelancing. And I'd finally gotten a full-time job as a journalist, which was kind of a dream out of nowhere. And now after like seven or eight months, it looked like it was all gonna go away. And I think I just didn't want to stress you out, so I just kind of dealt with it and didn't, didn't really say anything about it to you.
1: The piece caught the attention of the CEO of Clarity Media, the company that owned and managed The Examiner. She emailed then-editor Frank Keegan and told him to fire Steven.
0: And, you know, it wasn't just the pressure to fire me. There was a lot of weird stuff going on at the Examiner at the time. You know, one of my editors wanted me to expose all the sources because one of the reasons I was open to the community's concerns was because I had police sources who had been very, you know, accurate with me before telling me that, yes, there were women who were not, who were dying, who, you know, weren't being reported. So he was like, you got to expose your sources in the paper, which is really just from a journalistic perspective. Like you just don't do that. That's just sacrosanct. You never, no matter what happens to you, you go down in flames with your sources. And I refuse to do that. So like the bottom line is I was getting it from so many sides, I just thought (laughs) my career is over.
1: happened next
0: well when I sat back and read the piece uh, in the nose column which by the way was anonymous this was an anonymous piece no one took a byline in this so I really don't know to this day who wrote it Um, there were so you
1: have some suspicions
0: I do but I don't know for sure Mm -hmm. there were several things that struck me Um, for one we had never reported the fact that women had been murdered I just quoted people who felt like women had been murdered and we had quoted people at the protest right but every reporter does that you go to a protest and you quote people and it just so happens these people were making claims about women being murdered and then of course there was a the question of tyra because she was the one person uh that was shown at the protest as being evidence that there was a problem and the nose column had said okay tyra mcclary is was died of a drug overdose and uh You know, there was no doubt she was not a victim of foul play. And they took the police's word for that. So I just decided to approach it. Like, I just kind of said, okay, you know what? I'm screwed no matter what I do. But what I'm going to do is just dig into this story because I want to find out what's going on. Like, why did the community feel this way? And why did the police say this? And it's such odds. And, you know, of course, the nose and other people tried to make it out to be political. This was all the surf. Governor Ehrlich's ambitions. But to me, I saw those people. They weren't BSing, you know. They really believed that there was something going on in their neighborhood. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to start with Tyra, and I'm going to work through this and figure it out. And I have a job today, and I might not have it tomorrow, but at least I'm going to find out what the hell was going on.
1: Hiris' death was in fact ruled undetermined, a category of legal limbo that simply means the medical examiner cannot rule out the four manners of death. Homicide, suicide, accident, or natural causes.
0: So I go down to the medical examiner's office because you can't just look at autopsy online. And I fill out the forms to get the autopsy. And you have to pay a fee, and you have to wait. And finally it's ready. So I go down there and I pick it up. And I'm standing in the lobby of the medical examiner's office in downtown Baltimore, and I just sort of drop in my seat. Like, I'm like, what the fuck?
1: Per investigation, the decedent was found decomposed, partially buried in a pile of mulch. An autopsy revealed no signs of trauma. However, because of where Ms. McClary's body was found, in conjunction with the lack of preservation of the body, the possibility of asphyxia cannot be entirely ruled out. The manner of death is undetermined.
0: And so I'm just sort of blown away, because not only is Tyra's case far more complex than how the Nose reported it, that it wasn't just a simple overdose, that there were a lot of conflicting factors, but they, just like they accused me of, had just quoted the police department and taken their word for it and hadn't done any sort of exploration of the facts. I mean, she was decomposed, right? So they don't know if she had abrasions on her. I mean, and another aspect that's not in there, uh, in what you just read, was that her adrenal gland had hemorrhaged, right? And her thyroid gland had hemorrhaged. Very, very unusual um for both adrenal and thyroid, especially the thyroid. So the thing was is that all this stuff about Tyra McCleary just being a drug overdose was was simplistic, was not her death and, and the community's concerns were complex.
1: What were you thinking at that point? How did you process?
0: Well, there was a lot of things going through my mind at that point because I was getting so much pushback, you know? I mean, at that point I was like a marked man. I remember going to a press conference at City Hall like even like a year later and this reporter confronts me and he said, "You know, you made up a serial killer." And I'm like, "That's not what happened. You know, I covered a protest and let's be real, we didn't the examiner make up anything. We just covered what the community was saying. If that's a journalistic sin, then fuck journalism, you know, from my perspective. <laughs> right. But that's what that's what we were doing. And I, and I was still getting grief, um, you know, and The Wire actually did their season five on a reporter who made up a serial killer. But there was nothing made up in my reporting. Everything I reported happened. And everything that was said was said. So I was like, you know, I think it just kind of motivated me to keep looking into it because I kept fe- feeling like, You know I've got to answer this on some level I've got to come up with you know some understanding of this so people can understand this so we don't do this again where we kind of miss the forest for the trees I mean you know we can say that someone created a serial killer so that Rob Ehrlich can win an election but everyone forgets Tyra McClary everyone forgets the victim and everyone forgets that is it possible that a, a, a community like Park Heights that's been subjected to zero tolerance policing and brutal violence would be conflicted about what was going on. And of course, as you know, women were dying. It's just not the way we thought.
1: So Stephen filed a Maryland Public Information Act request asking for all the names, dates, primary cause of death, and, most importantly, the location of where the bodies of women were found that were ruled undetermined. The idea was to figure out if perhaps some of the deaths residents had raised concerns about were undetermined, and just how big a problem it actually was.
0: So, I filed this Maryland Public Information Act request, and they did give me some information. But the one thing they wouldn't give me, and they were adamant about this, was they would not give me the location of the bodies where they were found. In other words, they would tell me if a woman was undetermined and had been strangled or if a woman was undetermined and had died of blunt force trauma, which, of course, would raise questions. But they would not give me the address. They just wouldn't do it. And so I, you know, I I tried to convince the examiner to sue them, but they wouldn't do that. You know, I did everything I could. Um... But they just would not. And they said, well, we have privacy concerns because we don't want people visiting the area where these women died and, and harassing their relatives or you know, you know, whatever it was, it was BS. But for some reason, they just didn't want me to know the location. And so it appeared to me like we're living in a city of secrets, right? Because here I was trying to solve a, a puzzle about, you know, why a community was in so much pain about a serial killer or women dying, let's say, and uh, the, the main government office that has the information that might be able to shed some light on this. I mean, they could have just been overdose victims, but they wouldn't give me the address. So why keep that secret?
1: As I said before, you didn't talk much about the article, but you did start talking about a project you were working on, something related. Um, I remember you said it was going to be about dreams.
0: While I was investigating this, uh, you know, and I started sort of getting a sense of how this whole system worked, where people would end up in this huge category of undetermined, and then you had thousands of people being arrested illegally, and you had most of this focus of law enforcement both neglect and abuse focused on poor african-american neighborhoods like park heights i started thinking that i had to come up with a way to to write about it in my spare time to in some way grasp what was going on because i felt like even if i wrote a story that explained all this no one would believe it i mean i kept writing zero tolerance stories and you know after that we had the arrest of seven-year-old gerard mungo which is a story i broke and it didn't matter You know, I mean, they kept arresting thousands and thousands of people. And, you know, all the stories I wrote on undetermined deaths didn't matter. And to me, after a while, it started to seem like there's a deeper, deeper purpose to this law enforcement complex that we have in Baltimore. And somehow it has to be self-sustaining because it's ultimately unjust. And the only way you sustain something that's unjust, you know, is by creating the psychological sort of landscape where it can survive so i just started focusing on writing at night because it just i had to do something to deal with it because i just it was terrifying to me so i just kind of picked a metaphor about dreams because to me that represents sort of the idea of who we are. You know, not, not a dream per se of the musing of the unconscious, but the idea that dreams represent potential, right? Or a perception of ourselves or what we're capable of. And, you know, I constructed this story solely really for my own, you know, not edification, but just pacification. So <laughs> I felt like I had something to say about it. Just I'm going to invent this world where I'm going to write about Everything I know but in a total parallel universe where it's not a rest, it's controlling the mind. And I thought maybe by doing that, you know, it would give me some sort of sense of how this really worked. It was was really speculative, but that's how I kind of was able to deal with it. And so I, (laughs) it's really crazy, but I came up with this fictitious city called Blaze Mm -hmm. And um, I came up with the idea, instead of a police department, there would be a Bureau of Dreams, and there would be this guy whose job it was to police people's dreams and and make sure people weren't thinking bad thoughts. And, you know, this would be targeted at controlling, to a certain extent, the African-American community. So it was crazy.
1: I work for the Bureau of Dreams in the city of Belize. I am a reviewer of waivers assigned to District 4, Sector 3. My office has space for only two desks, mine and Herman Reel's. Reel is the director of intake, my supervisor. He is tall, lurching, and flatulent, and prone to tuck dull colored ties beneath the fold of his belt. I sit behind a plated metal desk held together by rust Only one window, a small portal filled with yellow safety glass, allows natural light to enter the room. When the sun fails to show, which is often in Belize, I work under the twittering glare of a fluorescent light bulb that hangs from the ceiling like an incurious glowworm. It was my fifth anniversary working for the Bureau. Real was slumped over his desk, asleep on the scraps of an unfinished meal. I, however, continue to pore over paperwork of errant dreamers. My job is to review, score, and approve or deny the requests for waivers by citizens of Belay's who are scheduled to be remanded to the Waking Recidivist Complex. I am by law required to read every waiver filed in my sector. Some are ketchup-stained forms filled out with scrawled handwriting and littered with indiscriminate spelling errors. Others are neatly typed and precisely worded. All, as required by protocol, contain a synopsis of the dream, a recommended course of treatment, and a prognosis. When I am done, if the case merits review, I hand it over to Reel. And so the main character who works for the Bureau of Dreams gets caught up in a scandal because dream monitoring is disproportionately focused on the African-American community. For at least a half an hour, I watched the screen unblinkingly. Snapshots appeared, tantalizing dramas that seemed to dance on the edge of infraction. A black man weaved in a serpentine path along a sidewalk. A bottle hid in a brown paper bag tucked under his arm like a football. A black woman sprinted out of a corner store, tossing what looked like packages of cigarettes to outreach hands, lined in a desolate back alley. A black teenager darted across the screen, holding an unseen object tightly in his hand. Soon thereafter, another boy followed, he too seemingly carrying something in his hand. But while the dozens of snapshots offered a nearly godlike view of the city, the limitations of the lens made it difficult to lift my hand. Did the woman steal the cigarettes? Was the man stumbling down the street drunk? What was the young man doing? How would I know? But despite my doubts, I touched the screens. What else could I do? Yes, the bureau would dock my score if I erred, but it seemed unlikely the deputy major employed hundreds of cameras throughout the city, constructed a complex remand center, and employed thousands of bureau workers just to be lenient. The Bureau Analyst tasked with reviewing my reports probably had quotas too. So I began to report any activity that seemed less than innocuous, any action that suggested even a hint of wrongdoing. By simply selecting a scene that seemed suspicious and using the broad definitions of violations made available by the Bureau, it only took me an hour to meet and then surpass my quota. It was a strange feeling of power that belied the chains coiled around my ankles. I could see everything unfold at once. The screens blinked like obedient children. The stories hidden inside terminal shadows were now on display. Quickly, I ran my hand across the monitor, enlarging scenes with the agility of a pianist. It was easy to judge, and even more empowering to pass judgment. Ambivalent infractions soon became extensions of my paranoid imaginings, my former ambivalence eradicated by the surety of an all-seeing eye. What I believed to be wrong became just that, with a touch of a hand.
0: That scene is what kind of tied it all together for me about what I had sort of learned from covering this system, from the serial killer to the undetermined deaths, to the entirety of this criminal justice system was that in a way it had made us all suspect. It had made our motive suspect. It had made the fear of a community suspect. It had made the work of a journalist who listens to the community suspect. The psychology of this system had turned us all into potential criminals, whether it be a person going to cover a protest or a person at a protest with some ulterior motive to undermine a system that was reinforced by injustice. And, and that the only way I could express it the way I thought people would understand was through the dream, was through that conscious uh, understanding that we're one thing in physicality, but another thing in potential and in our conscious thoughts of ourselves. And so that's why I had that scene where the power of being able to pass judgment uh, with little repercussion uh, not only affects the psyche of the people who do it, but the psyche of an entire community. And so that's how the book and writing it helped me get through what I had to get through and how it helped me deal with with what, what happened. It helped me in that sense to understand that there was a larger psychological issue. And of course, while I'm writing it, as a year went by, just something unbelievable happened that I wasn't expecting.
1: But that wasn't the end of the story.
0: So what happened next totally, absolutely caught me off guard.
1: In fact, just two years later, the threat of a serial killer would resurface, but this time in a way that raised even more questions about the city and the way it deals with crime. And ultimately, the people who have voices and those who do not. All that coming up on the next episode of Truth and Reconciliation. What did I do? What did I say? What did I want? Was it too much? Thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation for the third part of our series through the lens.
0: Truth and Reconciliation is produced by Teagram, Steven Janice, Sean Yost, and Sienna Greaves for Ace Spectrum Productions.
1: Truth and Reconciliation is engineered by Sienna Greaves.
0: If you like our podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or leave a review.
1: For more information on Stephen's novella, This Dream Called Death, including a link to my reading of the text, go to the Truth and Reconciliation webpage at www.wypr.org forward slash podcast central.
0: If you have a story that you think we should tell, uh, please feel free to contact us personally on Facebook or Twitter.
1: And please make sure to join us for part two of this story, The Serial Killer Who Wasn't Then Was. And thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation.